Welcome to the new season of The Making of, a Nat Geo podcast. I'm Chris Albert from National Geographic, and this season, we are diving deep with the artists who make our documentary films and series stand out amongst the rest. This episode is all about pulling back the curtain on directing a documentary. I have the honor of welcoming storied filmmakers Ron Howard, director of We Feed People, and John Hoffman and Janet Tobias, directors of Fauci, who together are going to share their experiences of being let inside the bubble of two titans who inspire change. Between Ron's behind-the-scenes look at Jose Andres and his foundation World Central Kitchen, and John and Janet's revelatory peek at Dr. Anthony Fauci as he navigated the country's foray into an unprecedented pandemic, you are about to get an insider's look at two acclaimed men and the people around them who keep them centered. I'm very excited about this conversation. Thank you all for being here. Glad to be here. Thank you, Chris. Happy to be here. Both films that we're talking about today are spotlights on larger-than-life men who have committed their lives to tackle global issues of hunger and climate change and the pandemic, and I want to get to all of that. But I think where I really want to start is, as a documentary director, I feel like maybe the first thing that is most important is trust and gaining the trust of your subject. So I'd just love to ask each of you, how did you go about doing that? You know, Ron, let's start with you with Jose and then Janet and John with Dr. Fauci. How did you go about gaining their trust in order to tell the story you wanted to tell? Over a period of time, I you know met Jose. Once or twice, we were both speakers at conferences and I just happened to hear his talk. And it was fascinating to me But I wasn't thinking of him as a documentary subject. I just appreciated what he was accomplishing. It was really remarkable. Later, my wife Cheryl and I met he and Tichi, and we began to sort of see more behind the talk, you know, the kind of commitment he had made, the sort of sacrifices. And then I began to read about him. Internally, at Imagine Documentaries, we began to ask ourselves, you know, is this a subject? Is Jose a subject? We also found out that, you know, the folks at Nat Geo really were curious about it, had even approached Jose, and it was not something that he wanted to pursue at that time. So eventually I mustered the courage to go to one of his fundraising events, along with Justin Wilkes and Sarah Bernstein from Imagine Documentaries, and ask him directly. And he said, quite frankly, he said, here's my problem. I don't want to make it be about me. And he pointed to this wall of photos of volunteers and key lieutenants at World Central Kitchen. He said, this is really what World Central Kitchen is. These people, yes, I lead, I'm involved, I'm proud of it. And I said, look, Apollo 13, I like to make movies about teams who accomplish things. And yeah, I'm interested in how you've made this organization work. And I realized I was kind of tap dancing a little bit, but the reality was that is what attracted me to the story. And it often does. And I think it was also kind of great because he just saw the Pavarotti documentary and he's a big Luciano Pavarotti fan and he liked the way we handled that subject. So I think that came in handy. Is it true that he said somewhere along the lines, shit, I don't want to be 90 and have turned down Ron Howard? (laughs) (laughs) Well, he didn't say it to me. So maybe that was part of his inner monologue. You know, whatever it took, I was glad when he said, look, we had follow-up meetings with Nate Mook and others at the organization uh, and our 
our Imagine team, you know, and slowly but surely began to build that trust, including Dan Martinson and Howie Kahn, who had been covering them, you know, in World Central Kitchen for a long, long time. And we'll talk more about that later. But all of that footage ultimately became really the foundation for our film. Janet and John, similarly, Dr. Fauci, not only did you have to gain his trust, you filmed almost the entire movie during COVID when obviously he had a lot of other things that he was involved with. How did you initially approach Dr. Fauci and get him to agree to this? Like Ron, I met Dr. Fauci a couple of years beforehand after we'd done a film on the 21st century threat of pandemics before COVID. And so we were speaking at a, an event together and and he liked the project. And I thought, oh my God, this is the most legendary scientist within AIDS in the US and within infectious diseases. And we started talking about something we could do together on the AIDS vaccine. And out of that, spending time with him, it became obvious that someone should do a story about his life, that he had had an incredible impact as a public servant in the US. And I asked him before COVID. And then COVID happened, and I was smart enough to join forces with John. <laughs> Thank you. So COVID happened. It was February. We were a few weeks away from what was going to become the lockdown, but Fauci was becoming a household name. And so my colleagues, Ali Moss and John Barden, that I had done a number of films with, called me up and we had done a number of films with the NIH, one of which included Fauci and his wife. And so they called me up and said, look, we've got to do a film about Fauci. And so I called Francis Collins' office at the NIH and I said, to my contact there, that we would love to make a film about Fauci. And they went to him and immediately came back and said, you know, do you know Janet Tobias? And I said, yes, I do. And so I called Janet. We teamed up immediately. And then it was this very fast, fast process of connecting with Nat Geo and talking with Courtney and Carolyn and them, you know, just saying yes immediately it was very soon after that that we were in production and Janet made this generous, bold move to relocate to D.C., really within days of D.C.'s lockdown and setting up this impenetrable bubble with Dr. Fauci. There were just his secretary, his number two, his security detail and his tech person and then us. And so uh, the last thing any of us wanted to do was infect Dr. Fauci and end up on the cover of the New York Post. So we stayed in lockdown and lived in a small bubble and had the great privilege of going to work with him many days a week and sitting witness to history. Janet, you said something that I think applies to both of these films, and I would love you to elaborate on it. And then, Ron, I'm going to ask you the same question, which is, our subjects don't control anything, but they are an integral part of the process of making the film. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? I think without the access to understanding someone's life, you can't make the right judgments on how to do the best film about them. So... They're letting us into their lives and the ordinary routines of their lives, the stressful things in their lives, the complicated things in their lives allows you the window to make the judgments about how to do the film. And Tony allowed John and I to do that, both about his past experiences in AIDS and also his present experience in COVID. And Ron, for you, how does that work? 
We needed Jose's cooperation on several different levels. And it was kind of funny because, yes, he wanted the film. He believed in the film. But it was so important to him that when the work was underway, that it would not feel like suddenly he was on a reality show or people were performing or any of that. And as big a personality as he is, as charismatic as he is, that was clear. Now, here's what's kind of interesting about it is Nate Mook and Sam Block, both figure into our film. They're important figures at World Central Kitchen now. They both began as documentarians simply wanting to cover World Central Kitchen in those early days. They showed up with cameras and he said, sure, sure, follow around, but don't get in the way, that kind of thing. And they began shooting. And a lot of that footage is in our movie, as again, I'm going to explain in a minute. But they also found themselves putting the cameras down and picking up you know, boxes and moving them around and helping to cook and distribute and driving the trucks. And slowly but surely, their mission became to support World Central Kitchen and not make the films. But <laughs> they continue to shoot and they're good shooters. And, and you know, a lot of that are the, the Instagram stuff, which is fantastic, the Twitter feeds and things like that, which help raise a lot of money and awareness for World Central Kitchen. So they are aware of all that. Well, I didn't get into the bubble. When I took on this film, I imagined going on the activations and really being, you know, kind of a part of the process and the adventure. And that just didn't happen. But Walter Madison did. Chris Kazor, who shot it, did. When he couldn't shoot, we had Alicia Sully and Sebastian Lindstrom, who have been also do a lot of work with World Central Kitchen, you know, on their social content and things like that. They were in there. So I was constantly texting in, FaceTiming in. I'd say, what did you get today? I mean, most of the time that we were shooting, it was COVID. And so their preoccupation had shifted into yet another mode, which is what World Central Kitchen does brilliantly, is that, you know, they're so nimble. But they were at Navajo Nation. And I said, well, Walter, what did what did we get? How's it going? And he said, you know, we didn't get much yesterday. They were shorthanded. And I realized they had put the cameras down. <laughs> uh, they were now, you know, helping. I had to remind them why they were there and that we, we had a kind of a limited amount of time to sort of get this done. Part two was really getting Jose to cooperate. He wanted us there, but occasionally my primary job as a director on a given day was to text Jose and say, you really do need to put a microphone on <laughs> or can you find a minute to talk to somebody from our team and answer a few questions and give us some context for what's going on with the activation. So lastly, and very late in the process, I had a conversation with Jose and I said, you know, congratulations, your story is a story of success. So what we're covering is one success after another. We do need to use this footage and look back. We do need to understand the origin story of World Central Kitchen. And we need your family archives and we need to talk to your family. And he said, but it's not about me. And I said, I know, but you're the number one alpha volunteer. I'm making a story now, I realize, about a system that allowed a lot of people in your wake to volunteer and make a difference. And we're going to follow those stories as well, which we do in our movie. But we have to understand this, this origin story. And so he allowed his family to participate. They gave some great interviews. Tichi was remarkable. Suddenly the whole thing became much more relatable. And I do think, you know, it is the story of how a commitment from 
a small group of individuals can lead to something remarkable, as has occurred with World Central Kitchen. One of my favorite scenes in the movie is when he's in the kitchen cooking with his wife and his daughters. And it just brings a level of humanity and realness to what he's doing. Well, you also understand, because you recognize parallels between him in the field getting things done and the way he behaves around his family. It's more relatable and it's just simply more accessible. The other thing that I just have to say is, is that Andrew Morale with his, it's over a thousand hours of footage. A lot of it did come from Dan and Howie and other people who were shooting from the beginning, going all the way back to Haiti or iPhone footage that they had. You know, one of the first scenes that we saw was this remarkable situation in North Carolina, 2018, where, you know, they're going along, it's a flooded situation, and the the whole truck tipped over. And fortunately, two people kept their uh, cameras rolling. One of them was an iPhone, somebody else had a Canon. And, you know, it was like, we just need as much of that footage as we can get. And they all made it available to us. And it became, again, this building block of this origin story. John, I know you and Janet faced a similar hurdle with Dr. Fauci in convincing his family to participate. And I would love if you could elaborate on how you got him to the point where they were willing to be part of the film as well. Well, Tony has three daughters and he's married to Dr. Christine Grady. They're all very private women who support their husband and father in all of his efforts and his remarkable commitment to his work, which has him working seven days a week for probably 40 years. And they've just become used to that, but it's it's never been something that they are public about. They are behind the scenes with their individual careers and particularly private. So Janet had begun a relationship with the daughters when she initially started talking to Tony about the film. We both knew Dr. Grady. It was clear that Christine was was willing to be filmed to a certain extent, but it was a long time developing the trusting relationship with the daughters to the point that they were, one of them in particular, was willing to speak with us. And it was really just because of COVID that we were restricted to just speaking to the eldest daughter, Jenny, because she lived in Boston. We could drive there. This was when no one was traveling by plane. And so the three daughters met amongst themselves, decided that Jenny would be the one, not just because of proximity, but also because of her being more comfortable than the others. And we're incredibly grateful to them for that decision that Jenny would be interviewed. And she gives us a great interview, as Ron's saying, about having the family and how that makes uh, Jose more relatable. It's the same situation for us, that if we did not have Jenny, I think that the audience would be left wondering, why don't we meet his family? And she tells great stories and she adores her father. She talks about being tough on him. So she gives us some good moments of levity and also her protectiveness of him is very clear. We haven't talked about this yet, but one of the challenges that we came to face was the increasing threat to Tony and his family. And Janet uh, had to come to make that part of how she was shooting, was dealing with now Tony having 24-hour security. And his anger is is very palpable um, when he talks about his sort of acceptance that he's become a target, but his rage at the 
thought that his daughters and his wife are targets as well. He just, he's fiercely protective of them. But Jenny speaks about that too. And so that very dramatic turn of events for that family as something that they probably never in their life thought that, you know, would become something that they would have to contend with as a family and as individuals as they just go about their days. That's part of the story. Janet, there's a scene in the film of Fauci from home movies of Fauci in the pool with one of his daughters when she's probably five. And it really resonates with audiences because it presents Fauci in a light you're not used to, you know, you're just seeing him on CNN talking about the pandemic. Talk about the decision to include that in the film. Why was that an important scene? I think what I love is that a number of people who know Tony came to John and I and they said, that's a side of Tony we've never seen. And Tony was raised in a very tight Italian family in Brooklyn. Family is super important to him, but it is separated from work. And so a lot of people that were really close friends, they saw that and they were like, wow, that's the other part of Tony that we don't know. And so Ali, our producer, really pushed. We all pushed about where film was and eventually we got some. And then I just think it shows a deep, important side of Tony. At the end of an interview John did with him, John had been asking people, you know, how would you thank Tony? And, and he asked Tony, who would you thank? And Tony said, not on in the film, I would thank my daughters and my wife. They have no idea how much they made a difference. And he started to cry because it is at the center of who he is. And before you leave, I have to say is that Jose talked to Tony when I was in the office. They did a Instagram Live, and I actually, I was going to reach out to the team because I knew you guys were filming, and they had the best time. They both really loved each other, and I think Jose owes Tony a dinner. <laughs> okay, I, I'm going to remind him of that, but I'm, I'm, I'm a little annoyed you didn't get us that footage. <laughs> Ron, I wanted to ask you, Jose is a larger-than-life force. I mean, the moment the camera is on him, you can tell that, but you also were able to capture intimate, quiet moments with Jose, him by himself in the corner thinking, looking at the map, frustrated. How did you go about incorporating that into the film and why was that also so important? Well, of course, this film was really built in post-production. I talked about the, you know, over a thousand hours, but it's not an us against them kind of a story. There isn't that kind of uh, narrative. It's not built around a single crisis or movement, it's a process. It's of finding itself. And again, you know, I just have to say that Dan Martinson and Howie and Alicia and Sebastian, these people who have been covering him for years, their footage was so important, but it was a question of us knowing what to look for or deciding what to look for, to explore and, you know, and experiment and build various buckets of ideas. And uh, it's a cause and effect story. It's the, you know, I mean, it's, a call to action that's taken up, and then you you see how it evolves. But for him, it starts earlier than Haiti, where he really began to believe in this idea. It goes back to a mentor of his with the Washington Central Kitchen and the work he did there at age 22. But it goes back much earlier because his parents were sort of neighborhood-level philanthropists and caregivers, 
you begin to see that when that kind of impression is made on people and those sort of examples are offered and a framework, a structure is provided, some people may make lifelong commitments. Some people may commit a period of time in their life. Others may just come through for that day or two that they really, really can make a difference. And that ultimately is, I hope, the greatest takeaway of our story, which is why I agreed with Jose early You know, it wasn't just about him. It was also about his key lieutenants, but also those people who get caught up, you know, and often they're victims of a disaster themselves. And they express themselves through this activation. It makes a world of difference. It really moves the needle. John, I'm interested in the story arc you and Janet chose for Fauci because it could have very easily been a COVID film. You shot with him for a year and a half during COVID, but the arc is about his early work on AIDS and how he changed his mind and how he worked with advocacy groups. And I'm curious why that was such an important part of the story for you all to include. Well, we've been saying for quite a while that this is a story about a man whose character was forged in HIV and tested in COVID. And when we began this film, we knew that we were going to be exploring that dynamic and that the story of Tony Fauci's role in the HIV AIDS epidemic was central to a film about Tony Fauci. We didn't know where the COVID story was going to go, but we knew that there was a tremendous archive about his involvement in HIV AIDS, but also that he is probably the most important scientist in the story of that epidemic. That's what we represented to Courtney and Carolyn in selling the film, that this was this opportunity to go back 40 years and explore the story. It's about the two pandemics of our time. And because of other films about HIV AIDS that had been made, we had an awareness of the archive's potential. We didn't know that it had as much potential as it had, but we knew that there was enough archive to tell a, a very strong story. What emerged in the edit was the opportunities to compare and contrast the times. We knew there would, there would be many, but we, uh, we discovered a lot in the process of the edit itself. So the structure of the film, the nonlinear structure of the film was really one of the most exciting things to discover. We knew that we would do that, but the experimentation that we were able to do of what would motivate that look back at another aspect, another chapter of the HIV AIDS story. And when we began the film, Tony was heralded as a, the most important trusted voice in America, if not the world on the science of this emerging COVID epidemic. There wasn't a single person who was being critical of Tony, publicly at least. But with the head slap and some other pieces of reporting that revealed that he might be questioning some of the president's decisions, things took a dramatic turn. And the archive that we started accumulating of COVID and Tony's, you know, the politicization of everything Fauci, it just dramatically changed the direction of the film and how we were going to manage our perceptions of the changing politics of the epidemic. 
there were times when you know certain Trump Fauci battles, uh, you know his appearances on the Hill that became contentious. They loomed large in our minds, and then you know over time they would recede. You know you see in the film where there are certain moments which you know will I think endure for a long time in terms of when they the public saw them as as coming up against one another. But the experience of going back forty years and reliving the HIV AIDS epidemic, I think for all of us making that film, it was a profound emotional experience to to go back. There is that profound moment in the film too, where I think you, John, are interviewing him and he gets choked up and says it's PTSD. And you kept that in the film, which, because I think it's such an emotional moment. What was his reaction to you keeping that in the film? Yeah, I don't recall talking to him about that about the fact that we specifically included that moment. I think what was interesting and remains interesting for me is that we had never talked to Tony about how this was fundamentally different than any other interview that he had done, but he understood it. And he also knew of my work in HIV AIDS going back to that time. I was working at New York Hospital during those dark years. So there was something that we were... a small dimension of the experience that we we shared. So that, I think, contributed to his feeling more comfortable in this interview than maybe in others and allowing himself to get emotional. But when he did cry, and I did not know that was going to happen, and then he allowed me to push him further, I fully expected him to regain that composure and say, you know, I'd prefer if you don't use that in the film. I'm not comfortable crying on camera, but he didn't. And in other interviews that Janet mentions, you know, when he talked about his family, but there are other interviews where he also cried. And I think that it just is a demonstration of his tremendous understanding of media and understanding that the commitment that he made to us, you know, was completely different than any other interview that he had ever granted. And that the only way this film was going to work as if he was fully available emotionally. So I think I speak for Janet and myself when I say that that's the biggest debt of gratitude that we have to him for this film is his willingness to be completely available emotionally. Ron, I want to ask you, I find the relationship between a documentary filmmaker and the editor, especially for a film that uses so much archive, is so critical to how the film comes together. I was wondering if you could talk about your relationship with your editing team and how that works. Well, Andrew and uh, Gladys came in for a short period of time, but it was primarily Andrew. And also, of course, our producers were a part of this running conversation. What else? What else can we find? And then constantly bouncing cuts back to Matthew Smith and Meredith Colfers was around always. So there was this sort of conversation about where else can we go? What else can we find out about? And a lot of the moments, I was taken by what John was saying about Dr. Fauci. There's a moment that we have in our movie that we didn't shoot because it happened in the Bahamas in an activation before we were involved. And it was a very pivotal one in the life of World Central Kitchen. It was long and it was difficult and it became a little bit political and it was a real struggle. And in it at one point, Jose kind of blows up at somebody, one of his own, one of the people who are helping. And a woman who's there just to get food calls him out on that 
And there's a really interesting, fairly lengthy exchange. And we made this, we all talked, we made this decision to leave it in. And I don't even remember who shot that scene at the time, but they had the presence of mind and the openness to not stop the camera, to record this thing. And Jose, he kind of questioned it a little bit. He said, I regret that moment, and, uh, but it's all part of it. And I think in a way that, that, as John was describing, I think Jose also recognizes that to put a human face on the process, the cost, with that kind of engagement generates in us as human beings on the positive and the negative side was important to understanding, again, this sort of citizen's effort to make a difference. These are not trained professionals going into the field of rescue. You know, they're volunteers. And so I really appreciated that there was no pushback on that scene, even though I recognized that it was not uh, one of his proudest moments. But also hats off to the team who all these years have been recording these things and these private moments and these moments of, of, of frustration. You know, and Jose never then said, hey, shut that down, please. Janet, this probably isn't as PC anymore as it used to be, but there's a saying that behind every great man is an even better woman. (laughs) And I'm not sure there's a better example of that saying than Dr. Fauci and Chef Jose. Talk about the force that Dr. Fauci's wife is and why her voice in the movie was so important to you. I've actually said to Tony, in a lifetime of very smart decisions, the smartest thing you ever did is marry Dr. Christine Grady. And he said, you know, you're right. (laughs) They share the same passion for medicine and public health and the complex questions that swirl around public health. She's the head of ethics at the NIH's hospital, which is a clinical research hospital. So you can only imagine she deals with the hardest questions in ethics at the research facility. She is his sounding board, you know, for every day. They come home, um, they cook together or Really, she cooks more. He has one or two good dishes. You could use some <laughs> lessons from Jose. What's his best dish? Uh, pasta. Definitely pasta from his Italian roots, right? She's a really good cook, but they talk at dinner and they talk about their days. And Christine worked as a nurse before she got her PhD in ethics. And so she worked side by side with him during the AIDS epidemic. So together they experienced the devastation of having young patient after young patient die and not having the drugs to treat them. And then the amazing advent of new drugs that allowed everyone to survive. So they have that shared history. So she is confidant, advisor, and also a rock. She's her own person. Tony works 24-7 and Christine has preserved the family and gone to every soccer game and every play. And as Tony says, it is because of her that we have such magnificent kids. Ron, you said in an interview recently, I love stories that show what we can accomplish when we are compelled to engage. And I think what you meant by that was what the value of service. And I think what both of these films do is show the value of service. And I would just love for each of you to talk for a minute about why that was an important message for these films to get out. So Ron, maybe I'll start with you. I certainly hope that is the takeaway. It's why I love the title, We Feed People. You know, it's not uh, the Jose Andre story. And I think that is what's so remarkable about what Jose and others do. And I witnessed a fair amount of that in my previous documentary, Rebuilding Paradise, which was about the community coming together. And I observed 
then because that was a case where we covered that community for a year. We followed, you know, the same people as they tried to cope with this. And I recognized that those who chose to engage in community and help others, they did better. They flourished sooner. They regained their footing. I just felt like there's a such a lesson many lessons in Jose's example and what he sets. But first and foremost, I wanted to be an example, uh, kind of rolling up the sleeves and getting in there and what a difference individuals can make. Janet? I think, you know, that's the reason I and, and I think also John were attracted to telling Tony's story, Dr. Fauci's story, is that he is one of the longest serving public servants in U.S. government. He served for almost four decades and I'd say the highest level of continuing service. And I really wanted to understand in this complex, divided world where people don't necessarily gravitate to public service, what that means and why that's so important and why that's so critical to our society. And John? I think Janet says it perfectly. It was also from the beginning, one of the things that we talked about with National Geographic, that this was an opportunity to elevate public service by showcasing Tony. And the demonstration of that in his being someone who has appeared before Congress more than any other human being in the history of the country and the tireless nature of his commitment to the nation's public health is something that we're very proud to have had that be really one of the strong messages of the film. John, if you could Describe Dr. Fauci in one word. What would it be? I think it's courageous. I don't know that we, I would have said that two years ago before COVID, but now I would say it's courageous. And Janet? Committed and passionate. <laughs> I'll give you two. And Ron, how would you describe Jose in one word? Dynamic. Whether it's his restaurants, and we can't forget that he's built a, you know, a huge restaurant business appearances on television and, and, and all of this incredibly successful and turned much of that dynamism and entrepreneurial know-how toward uh, World Central Kitchen now. Well, I think that's a great note to end on. This was so fun. Thank you all so, so much. I really, really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us. From National Geographic Headquarters in Washington, D.C., This has been The Making Of, a Nat Geo podcast. My guests today were directors Ron Howard, John Hoffman, and Janet Tobias. For more information on We Feed People and Fauci, please visit natgeotv.com backslash FYC. That's a wrap. The Making Of, a Nat Geo podcast is a National Geographic production. Executive producers Chris Albert, Raquel Bravo, and Jennifer Driscoll. Hosted by Chris Albert. Written and produced by Dave Beezing, Angela Pirelli, and Thomas Green. Michelle Vensel, Production Coordinator. In association with Benstown, McVeigh Media, and Sound That Brands.